This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. We continue in our series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. While you're turning there, I just want to emphasize um, something Mike said earlier in the announcements and invite you to attend Thursday night, the Maundy Thursday service. Um, the name Maundy Thursday uh, derives from uh, the Latin text from John 13, where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he says to them, a new command I give you, uh, and, or mandate, and the word mandi derives from Latin by way of French, and the name itself is, uh, indicates that that day commemorates the institution of the Lord's Supper in the upper room the night before Jesus died on Good Friday. Uh, traditionally, as we have observed it, it is an opportunity to focus on the sufferings of our Lord Jesus generally, as well as celebrate the Lord's Supper on that night when we remember its commemoration and its institution and commemorate it in that service, uh, but also to focus on the suffering of our Lord prior to the focus on his victory and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. If you've been to the service, you know it's similar in some ways to the Christmas Eve service with the reading of scripture passages uh, followed by hymns that relate to those passages. And so I invite you to come. It'll be 7 o'clock Thursday night. Hope to see you then. This morning, we're looking at Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Hear the word of God. The context is Jesus speaking in the temple precincts after the triumphal entry, and he's engaged in dialogue with the chief priests and the elders of the people. He says to them, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let let us kill him. And have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable end and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, 
the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Father, open to us your word. Speak to us. Speak to our hearts those things you would have us learn. Show us ourselves. Show us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus begins in verse 33, here another parable. And you may recall a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, that Jesus had already told one parable there uh, in the face of this hostility of the Jewish leaders, the one of the two sons, where a father says to one son, go and work in the vineyard. And the son says, I will not. But afterwards he went. And another, he says, go work in the vineyard. And the son says, I will. But he does not. And Jesus asks, who did the will of his father? And his point was that uh, these chief priests and elders, for all their religious talk, ultimately were not doing the will of their father. And yet the tax collectors and the prostitutes, for all the rebellion and wickedness of their lives up to that point, hearing Jesus, repented and believed and followed him and entered the kingdom. But then Jesus, as it says here, says to them, hear another parable. Now, as Jesus uses that word, it would be worth reminding ourselves what a parable is. Parables that Jesus told were more than just an illustration thrown alongside truth he was teaching. They very often were the truth that Jesus was teaching. And as Jesus reminds his disciples in Mark 4, he spoke in parables because to his disciples, to those who received him, to them was given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to others who had not entered, who refused to enter, uh, Jesus spoke in parables to conceal, so that although their eyes see, they would not perceive. And he quotes from Isaiah 6, though their ears hear, they would not hear, lest they would be saved. And so the parable itself is an instrument Jesus used to communicate the truth of the kingdom and to do so in such a way that those whom the Father gave eyes to see and ears to hear received the truth in their hearts and others did not. Now, that didn't mean that even those who resisted Jesus couldn't see at a surface level what Jesus was getting at. As we as, uh, Matthew comments that they understood Jesus was telling this parable about them. And yet they didn't understand it in a way that brought brokenness, that brought repentance, that brought salvation. It only served to harden their hearts further against Jesus. So as Jesus tells this parable and others, keep that in mind, that even the parable, that form of speech Jesus used, was itself uh, a, a winnowing out, a separating of sheep and goats, even as Jesus talked. Well, let's look at this parable Jesus told. There was, he says, a master of a house. Uh, a landowner, homeowner, planted a vineyard, and we assume this is the startup, the beginning of this agricultural endeavor. And this master of the house did everything that he could to ensure its success. And Jesus lays out some of the things a person would do as they're beginning a vineyard. So they put a fence around it. You want to keep uh, keep animals out. You want to keep uh, intruders out. 
dug a wine press in it. This was, after all, a vineyard. The purpose was to grow grapes to make wine. The wine press typically would be uh, made of two large vats, one lower than the other. One vat would contain grapes. Grapes would be put into it. They would be mashed out, and the juice would drain out of that first vat into the lower second vat for collection, for gathering, perhaps for fermentation as well. And so he fenced off his area. He has installed the wine press, which was where the grapes he was growing uh, were heading, and he built a tower uh, in order to be able to look over the vineyard, keep an eye out for any intruders, anything unseemly taking place with the vineyard. And since he himself was not going to be the one out working the vineyard, he leased it out to tenants. And the tenants would, would work the land. They would uh, derive their living from the land. But since it was not their land first and foremost, but the owners, they were merely leasing it and using it, they were obligated to pay to him, uh, to give to him a certain amount of the, the proceeds, the grapes that were grown. And that not only was the owner's due, but it also established his ownership of the land. And so Jesus is describing what was not an uncommon occurrence in that day, a startup business, a vineyard beginning, and it's leased out to the tenants. And having everything in order, it says he went into another country. He went away. He was not on the premises, is Jesus' point. Well, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants back to this vineyard in order to uh, get what was due to him, some of the fruit from this vineyard. And when the tenants see the servants coming, they receive them rather harshly. It says in verse 35, They took his servants and beat one and killed another, stoned another. So abused them terribly, even killed the servants who came. And Then the master sent other servants, and more than the first, Uh, A wise precaution in light of what has happened sends a a larger delegation of servants to go and gather what is due. Some suggest that this didn't happen right away, but happened the next year when it was time for him to collect. Uh, We don't know. We just know that after the first were uh, treated so badly, the owner sent other servants to come and gather the fruit that was due him. And they did the same to them, verse 36 says. And finally, he sent his son to them. Surely they will respect my son. And when the son comes, the tenants are all the more excited, all the more malicious. And they say, look, here comes the son. He is the heir. Let us take him and kill him. And then we will have his inheritance. Maybe they thought that since the son was coming, the owner had died. And the son now was the possessor of the vineyard. And if they killed him, then they could stake their claim for this land, and in three years it would become theirs. At any rate, they rejected the owner, they rejected the servants, they rejected the son, they rejected his claim to anything from this land. And so it says they took the son, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now this is a parable. And in this case, the uh, the significance of the elements of the parable are fairly obvious. And in fact, to Israel, this would be a very very familiar idea. Going back to the Old Testament, going back to Psalm 80, where the Lord describes bringing uh, a vine out of Egypt and planting it. 
where in, in Isaiah 5, uh, he says, let me sing of my beloved's vineyard. He established a vineyard and he cultivated it, produced only wild grapes. So this idea of the vineyard was, was a significant metaphor for Israel. And the landowner, of course, was God, was the Lord. The uh, tenants uh, were the leaders of Israel. And the servants sent to gather the fruit were the prophets of Israel, whom Israel rejected. And specifically, he says, they beat them, they killed them, they stoned them. And you don't have to look hard in the Old Testament to see where those things happened. We think of uh, in, in, in 1 Kings 18, Jezebel's persecution of the prophets of Israel. Uh, we're getting pretty acquainted with Jeremiah on Sunday nights. Jeremiah 20, where Pasher, the priest, uh, has Jeremiah beaten and put in stocks. Later, Jeremiah 37, where the leaders again beat Jeremiah and throw him into prison. The very ones who were coming and proclaiming the word of the Lord and declaring the sin of the people and calling them to repentance, calling them to be faithful to the covenant, calling them to be faithful to the Lord who had redeemed them. And the, the response as the prophets came looking for the fruit of God's grace in these people, of God's goodness to these people, was instead to be beaten and killed and stoned and otherwise rejected and rejecting God's claim on them. That's the parable that Jesus is telling. And that's the meaning of it. And for the most part, the parable is past tense. These things happened in the Old Testament. God established his people. He looked for the fruit of righteousness, uh, the fruit of his work in them. And what he got was wild grapes. What he got was their rejection, their rebellion, their sin, their idolatry. And so he sends prophet after prophet, and they reject it. That's, that's past tense. That's what has happened. But notice the parable goes on that the father sends his son to them, saying they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. This hasn't happened yet. At least not fully. But it is happening. This part is present tense. In fact, this very thing is going on even as Jesus is telling it. Part of the irony here is going on even as Jesus tells it. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Now, you don't press the details too far. The Jewish leaders were not necessarily thinking, here is the Messiah, let's, let's kill him and his inheritance will be ours. Not exactly. But the point is that even when the Son of God himself has come, they reject him, just as they did all the prophets that had previously come to them, whom the Lord had sent to them in the Old Testament. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Some saw that as Jesus going outside the walls of Jerusalem. But the problem is the vineyard is not Jerusalem. The vineyard is Israel, and Jesus wasn't cast out of Israel. But the point was they took him out of the vineyard to avoid profaning or making unclean their vineyard and hindering their prophets. So they take him out and they kill him. But it is a rather uh, prescient uh, view of Jesus' own death outside the city walls of Jerusalem. But then Jesus does something brilliant here. He allows them to supply the end of the story. 
Another way of looking at that is he allowed them to walk way out on a narrow branch, and he started sawing. (laughs) He says in verse 40, When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What do you think? Jesus turns it back on his hearers, especially the Jewish leaders there. What do you think he's going to do? Tell me. Well, they answer. They're they're incensed. You know, they're, they're, they're troubled. They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable end and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. This is an injustice. This is wrong. This should not be happening. He's going he's to deal with those people, wicked tenants, and he's going to lease it out to others who will give him his fruits. Now, setting a trap is not uh, unique with Jesus. This happened long, long before Jesus, millennium before Jesus. Remember King David? Remember when he was guilty of his sin with Bathsheba, his, his murder by proxy of Uriah, her husband, having him sent to the front lines with the intention of having him killed and confident there that he, he probably would be killed. And Nathan the prophet comes to David, the king, and he says, King, let me tell you a story. I'll tell you something that's happened. There was a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man owned many sheep, many cattle, many animals. And this poor man had one sheep, a ewe lamb, that was precious to him. It was part of his family, part of his household. It was really more of a pet, very much loved by the family. Well, the rich man has some visitors arrive. And instead of taking one of his many animals and serving it up for his guests, he takes that one lamb of that poor man from him, and serves it up to his guests. And David's livid. This isn't going to happen in his Israel. He says, the man who deserved, who did that deserves to die, and he's going to have to repay fourfold what he did. That's just wrong. Who would do such a thing? And Nathan says, King, you are the man. You would do and have done such a thing. Now he's taking... Bathsheba from Uriah. Well, Jesus is using a page out of Nathan's playbook here, so to speak, when he says, now what do you think should happen there? Because these men don't seem to perceive yet, they do later, but they don't seem to perceive yet that Jesus is talking about them, that they are the unfaithful, wicked tenants. And they say, well, the master is going to come and he's going to deal with those wicked tenants severely and he's going to give the vineyard to others who will give him his due. Jesus is saying, step step into the trap. And they did. They condemned themselves. When Jesus presents it that way, they see themselves as they really are. And they pronounce exactly what needs to happen upon themselves. And then Jesus drops the parable and begins to speak directly to them. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? You know, Jesus says that ten times. He said it uh, back just recently, earlier in chapter 21, in verse 16. Jesus said to them, Have you never read? And here again, he says, Have you never read in the Scriptures? So that's twice. Eight other times in the Gospels, Jesus says, have you never read? He's the only one who says that. Why does he say that? 
You know, he said, I, I gave you this book, and you know, you were supposed to know it. You're supposed to. Well, he's not asking whether they've ever read it. He's saying, don't you remember, or did you not understand? Don't you understand? And then he quotes from the passage we read earlier, Psalm 118. Have you never read in the scriptures? And it's a mild rebuke for their blindness. And again, Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, suddenly the metaphor changes from a vineyard to a building. Because that's what the psalm describes. In its context, the stone was Israel, the people of God, and the nations who opposed her. For those who rejected that stone. But Jesus says it has become the cornerstone. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was the cornerstone. It was God's foothold in the world. It was that conduit by which his grace would come in and go to the nations. But Israel, of course, was a bad vineyard. Her leaders rejected God and his truth and his prophets. But we come to the New Testament. The cornerstone is, of course, Jesus. The new Israel, the embodiment of Israel, the perfect Israel. Everything that Israel wasn't, Jesus is. And those who reject the cornerstone here are those chief priests, elders, Pharisees of the people. They rejected Jesus, even as those tenants rejected the prophets and even the Son himself. And yet, that one whom they rejected turns out to be the most important of all. You remember Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching to the people. He says, this Jesus, who by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, you crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men, God raised up, rejected by men, accepted by God. You know, the builders look at the cornerstone and they reject it, but it turns out to be the stone that is the foundational stone of the building. By the way, something significant going on here. Jesus obviously is the son of the landowner in the parable. That may be, in part, this parable may be, in part, the basis for the high priest uh, Caiaphas' charge that Jesus claims to be the son of God. He may well have had this parable in mind. And Jesus takes Psalm 118, that messianic passage, the one that contains the world, you know, the, the words, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which the people had just been shouting a day or two before on Sunday, Palm Sunday. This would have been on Tuesday where Jesus is speaking now. And he quotes from that same passage, obviously referring to himself, the cornerstone that the builders rejected, that stone they rejected, has become the cornerstone, the basis for the foundation. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to bring the parable home, that he is that son who was rejected by the tenants. He is that stone who was rejected by the builders. And yet he himself is the cornerstone. Now, Jesus applies this parable. He ends with a therefore. And the application, of course, had to do with the people then, but it also has to do with us today. Now, this parable is not about us directly. It was about Old Testament Israel. It was about those Jewish leaders uh, with whom Jesus was speaking at this very moment. We read this text. 
but it does apply to us. But let's, let's look at what Jesus says. Verse 43. Therefore, this conclusion, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. No more, no more deflection, no more story. Taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Two things. The kingdom of God will be taken away from them because of their rejection of the cornerstone of the sun, because of their rebellion. It will be given to a people producing its fruits. To those who will be what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. To those who will be faithful to the Lord. What Jesus is describing here is the end of Israel as such. And the beginning of the church. Jew and Gentile. The Christian church. Born in its, you know, if we were born proper at the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the church rapidly grows. Uh, uh, bringing in certainly Jewish believers and later Gentile believers. And increasing Numbers, and you read the book of Acts, and you see the new Israel in Christ bearing fruit, preaching the kingdom, preaching the grace of God in Christ, and people are being brought in by the thousands. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. And the exclamation point to this was the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in the year AD 70. The old is gone. The new has come. That rebellious, fruitless, faithless Old Testament Israel is at an end. And the fruit-bearing, faithful, productive vineyard of the Lord, the new covenant community, the church, Jew and Gentile, the new Israel, is here. But on a more personal level, 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now you reject the stone. It's become the cornerstone, but be careful, because it is a hard stone. And the one who falls against it will be broken. The one on whom it falls will be crushed. There is no successful Opposition to the Son. There is no successful opposition to the cornerstone. Many have broken themselves on Jesus ever since. Many have been crushed by him ever since. Now, that application today has to be this. Which are you? Are you part of that kingdom, the fruit-bearing, faithful kingdom of God? having experienced his grace, having experienced his salvation? Or are you one of those who is being broken and crushed by Christ and will be crushed by him in your rebellion if you persist? Which are you? Into which of these do you fit? Because you see, dear friends, you are one or you are the other. By default, we are one of those being broken on the cornerstone, being crushed by the cornerstone. We are those who are dead in our sins, those who are stuck in our rebellion against the Lord Jesus. But by God's grace, if you have recognized your condition as a sinner, justly deserving God's wrath and displeasure, and if you repented of those sins and believed in him, then you are in that kingdom 
in that new vineyard of the Lord, that new fruitful vineyard of the Lord. How do you know? Well, one way is that you have, not only with your mouth, but in your heart, confessed that Jesus is Lord. You believe that he has been raised from the dead, that he's the Savior, he's the King. He's the one who's the head of the kingdom, and you want to be a part of that kingdom. But you also know it by the fruit in your life, that there is a difference. There is a new hatred of the sin that you find in your own heart, a new desire to be obedient to the Lord, and in a deep sense all the while of your need of his grace, of his forgiveness, of his cleansing, of his righteousness. So which will it be? Which are you? A member of the fruitful vineyard, the kingdom of God? Or one of those who is still continuing to beat against that rock-hard cornerstone in fury, in anger, in rejection? I pray for you, for your sake, that you're part of the vineyard of the fruitful kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire as your people to be part of your vineyard, be fruitful, to bear fruit for you in our, in our hearts, in our lives, in our character, in our words, in our actions. Father, we pray that we would not be among those who reject your word, who reject your messengers, who reject your truth but that we would receive your word, your gospel, and bear fruit to your glory. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.